damage to all decks. Welcome back aboard Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris, and my image has been transformed into an animated version of myself as we move forward with the animated series. Steve, you're looking very two-dimensional today, but it is great to see you. I've missed doing our deep dives on Star Trek, and you know we, we ended the year strong, and now we are in a new year and entering a new phase of Enterprise Incidents. We are going to go beyond the farthest star, but before we do that, we are going to do a preview of the animated series with two gentlemen who are the most qualified to be joining us for this preview of the animated series. They literally wrote the book on the animated series. Uh, we are so excited to be joined by Aaron Harvey and Rich Jeppes. Thank you so much for joining us. They wrote the book, Star Trek, The Official Guide to the Animated Series. And after all these years, like to finally have a beautifully written and illustrated, very heavily illustrated book about the making of the animated series, giving the animated series the attention and the respect and the love and passion that it absolutely fully deserves. Uh, this book is fantastic. So if you love Star Trek in any way, this is a must-have book because even though there have been so many books about Star Trek that have been written over the years since the 1968 book, The Making of Star Trek, this one is special and unique and there is nothing like it. So before we get into the animated series, I just have to say first, Aaron Harvey, ladies and gentlemen, for everybody listening, you have seen me post the logo for Enterprise Incidents everywhere on social media over the last almost two years. Well, my good friend Aaron Harvey is the one who designed and created that logo. So blame him. <laughs> thank Aaron, you, Aaron. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. It was inspired also, by the 70s, actually. Like the concordance was sort of that was where I've got it kind of took that idea from and mutated it. Well, it was very much uh, a leaning into the animated series. So this is apropos to finally have you on our on, on our podcast. And and Rich, uh, you know, we just discovered right before we got into this conversation that not only are we from the same area of Philadelphia, but we went to the same high school and were there at the same time, just two years apart. Class of '86 for me, class of '88 for him. Uh, we both love Aldo's Pizzerama. Go Aldo's. Uh, Rich, uh, you know, it's so great to finally meet you and talk with you and to really geek out about the animated Star Trek. Thank you for having me. So let's just get started with uh, just some stats about the animated series. The animated series had its premiere on September 8th, 1973. So as you know, that date, September 8th, is one of uh, maybe a couple of Star Trek days but this is the one because back on September 8th, 1966, that is when Star Trek made its premiere with the Man Trap. That was for the original series. So seven years to the day, that is when the animated series made its debut. Uh, the last original first run episode of the animated series uh, aired on October 12th, 1974. There were a total of 22 episodes of the animated series. The budget per episode was $75,000 per episode, 
most of that money going to the fees of the actors voicing those characters. The writer's fee per half hour script was $3,000. And and the animated series is exciting to say is an Emmy winner and won an Emmy for Outstanding Entertainment for Children's Series 1975. So Aaron, like just what was like your entry point into Star Trek? What was the episode that that I guess uh, uh, fired your warp engines? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if I remember the exact, because I, I literally have been watching it since I can remember. Uh, my grandfather watched it, and he worked for Lockheed. Uh, and so I remember him you know, saying things like, we have more advanced computers than that now. Why is that, a, you know, like a, a dial or something like that? So I, I think I got some of my, also my, like, review of Star Trek and just sort of the, like, you know, pulling the pieces apart and, uh, Easter eggs from him as well. But I, I remember the Corbinite maneuver for some reason. That was like the, what really stuck out in my head. Um, that and uh, when they went back in time to, not tomorrow's yesterday. Is that what it was? Yes. Tomorrow's yesterday with Captain Christopher. Oh, okay. Especially because there was the Lockheed Starfighter in there. So, right. Since my grandfather had worked on that program, that was obviously something that, you know, he would tell me about. So I think in my head, as a small child, I probably thought, oh, somehow my grandfather is connected to Star Trek because of this plane. But, oh, uh, cool. Yeah, so that, that, and then shortly after, you know, I was like four, four or five, when the animated series came out, I would always see the intro. And because I was a kid, I was sort of like, oh, this is going to be Star Trek and not realizing that it was an animated and, or vice versa, because the intro is so similar in some ways. Um, so I remember confusing those as a kid, but, but yeah, so that's, that's my entrance. Pretty much uh, grandfather putting me on his knee and watching Trek with him. That's exciting. How about for you, Rich? Um, <clears throat> my mom was a big fan. So I started watching because of, of my mom. I remember seeing it on Saturday morning. Um, not as live, not when it first aired in, in reruns. Cause I was like only three, I think when the show first aired and that was my like first, television exposure and i remember the cartoon or the animated series but i really didn't remember things until i saw the original series so i'd watch them with my mom on on channel 17 wphl in philadelphia and i would just watch them over and over and over again i, I love that show um as far as the first episode i can really remember it is probably city on the edge of forever well, listen, everyone has their like entry point into into the original series, but you know, when it came to the animated series, can I, can I just jump in on that just for a moment because Scott, yeah. I just had a full epiphany. What's that? <clears throat> you've always you've asked me this question, what was the first Star Trek, you know, I remember, and of course I've always said, you know, like Aaron said, I have no idea. It's just kind of always been there. But <laughs> what year did the animated series premiere? 1973. So I was 5 years old. I watched Saturday morning cartoons. It's very possible that my first experience of Star Trek was the animated series. It's very possible. Oh. I, I, I literally have no idea, but certainly I was five. I was watching cartoons on Saturday morning. There are only three channels. I'm sure I was switching between them. I might have seen the animated series first. Uh, you know, that is very possible. I know some some people who, you know, who are our age, who, who they're they're first Star Trek was an animated series episode. I, I, I know for sure, 100%, my first episode was the original series, Mirror Mirror. I mean, I have such a freaking right. vivid memory of that. 
But I also know that around that time, you know, I was watching Saturday morning cartoons. I was watching the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show. Um, that was my favorite. But I do remember watching Star Trek on Saturday mornings. And I think, I think it's not as vivid, but I do have uh, a memory of, of watching the magics of Magus 2. Because I remember they met like Lucifer, you know, Lucian, you know, I was like, oh, this guy's the devil. And, and uh, I remember the Halloween episode. There you go. I remember just the music. I remember I still overall, I mean, we'll get into this, but I think the music for the animated series is fantastic. And the, the music for the opening credits is, I think, just as strong as uh, Alexander Courage's music from the original series. It's, it's different, but similar. And I, I just think it's fantastic. It's funny. That's, you know, the two things I remember of the animated series is the opening um, shot and the music, which just stands out, like you said. I mean, I, I play that La La Land um, set uh, to death. But also, my, like and I said this before, that shot of them running with that music, with, you know, Kirk and Spock, like that's, da, 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 that's da, da, always da, da, been there. Da, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. totally. But I also I also like the music every time it came like after the opening credits, you know, dan, 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 you know, then it would come to the opening title of the episode name. And, you know, that was a unique uh, a, a unique part of the score. Too. But we'll, we'll get into the music and, you know, all that and like how the guy had to, you know, uh, use a pseudonym, you know, and all that stuff because you, you wrote extensively about that. But before we get into the animated series. You know, there was a buildup to the animated series because when Star Trek left network television, uh, first of all, we all know that Turnabout Intruder was the last first run episode of the original series to air on June 3rd, 1969. What a lot of people don't know, but we talked about was the last original series episode to be repeated on NBC TV was Requiem for Methuselah, which aired on September 2nd, 1969. Now, shortly after that, that's when Star Trek really found its audience or its audience found Star Trek because it was shortly after that when Henry J. Kaiser, the founder of Kaiser Broadcasting, bought the syndication rights to Star Trek for the fall of 1969. So as early as the fall of 1969, UHF stations in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Detroit, Boston, Chicago, and WKBS TV channel 48 in Philadelphia aired Star Trek five times a week. Also around that time, maybe a couple years later in 1972, we had the very first Star Trek convention in New York, which was heavily attended to the point where they were, they got a lot more people than they expected. Now, Aaron, how did the animated series or rather the, the uh, syndication of the original series and the conventions lead up to the animated series? Well, there, there's actually a, a bridge between that that's actually that's earlier before it went off the air. Uh, Lou Scheimer came to Gene and they pitched a animated series that was going to run concurrently with the live action series. So you'd have the live action series on what Thursdays and then on Saturday was going to be this animated series that was a training ship. And each of the, the crew had a basically a counterpart 
except for Chekhov, who di- wasn't going to show up because he was too young, which is weird that like even in the Star Trek that never happened or the animated series that never happened, Chekhov was not involved. So oh. that was interesting. Um, you know, they so, you know, they they had all this idea and there was going to be like cute little animals. And basically it became Gene was just like, no, we don't want to do like the cutesy kid version of Star Trek that was wanted out off off the, the table. And then, of course, the show essentially got, you know, um, canceled. So all those time, all the entire time, like Lou was kind of going back and forth with Gene. Going, hey, you know, and I think once the show started to become popular in syndication, that's when the big push to like, we really need to bring this back as an animated show. And he agreed as long as it was actually Star Trek, that it wasn't as uh, Dorothy called it a kiddie show. Well, first of all, so so the the earliest proposal that you're talking about, Aaron, was that the original crew would train these these Federation cadets, these teenage cadets on the starship Excalibur. And Spock was going to mentor a young Vulcan named Steve. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we still think that's wow. a placeholder. <laughs> it's like, wow. Yeah. Very and, uh, I never knew I had a Vulcan name. Oh, yeah. McCoy, McCoy was going to mentor uh, a young African-American boy named Bob. Sulu, a Chinese boy named Stick. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it seems kind of weird, but just judging from that, uh, I'm yeah. glad that Gene Roddenberry, you know, said, wait, hold yeah. your warp engines, you know, hold your nacelles just a minute here. So, so Rich, talk about how, like, Roddenberry, he really wanted and insisted that if we're going to do animated Star Trek, it's going to be Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, uh, like Aaron said, you know, Lou kept going to him. Lou didn't, you know, and thank goodness for Lou Scheimer because he never gave up on the idea. And eventually, I think, you know, Gene finally said, like Aaron said, okay, let's do it. But it has to be Star Trek. It has to be with the original cast members. And he saw the possibilities that animation could provide, which was exciting to him because, you know, it was the costumes that you wouldn't see the zippers anymore. It, they could go underwater. They could show volcanoes. And that opened he up. Loved a lava. Whole, he loved lava. Um, <laughs> only thing, only thing he couldn't pull off was God again, you know, couldn't get God in the uh, episodes, but he, um, yeah. So I mean, it's just like, it was the popularity at the conventions, you know, that 1972 show in New York city, all of a sudden it's so many people. You know, the funny thing is, is that as much as the fans were really getting into Star Trek now, they were not excited about the animated series. Um, They were very critical of what was being proposed. And, you know, imagine it being today with the Internet. They didn't have it back then. But um, it it reminds me of the next generation when next generation was about was being announced and how critical fans were. Um, Yeah, the animated series was not very people weren't very eager to see it. We got our first, it's not Star Trek, you know, that, that it's sure. just remove animated series and put in any Star Trek after the original. And it's just the same argument. So it's just the, it's, it's not new what's happening today. Basically. It's wild that it actually goes back to, because I remember when next generation uh, first was being announced and, and like, how dare they replace Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock. How dare they? How dare they move it 100 years into the 24th century? I remember I was at a convention in I think it was 19 early 1987 and they you know they had already started filming the next generation 
And I got a T-shirt from a vendor that said, who needs a, who needs a next generation? <laughs> you know, I was that guy. But even back um, with the animated series, wow. There's this thing, this phenomenon that it's not unique to Star Trek. But I think Star Trek is maybe the prime first example of once an audience takes ownership of a thing. You know, it's not just that I like this show. I love this show. It's that this show is a part of me. Then as soon as you start to make changes, it feels to some people like an attack. You're attacking this thing that's part of me, you know, and I think that's what we see over and over again. It spoke to a very specific demographic, people that felt like they were on the outside. And here it was. They got it. This this amazing show that, okay, nobody else likes it. That's okay. I love it. And I know what it's about. And they had issues with them taking that away almost. You know, they felt like, all right, well, the animated series isn't going to be what I remember. Next Generation isn't going to be what I remember. And that was hard for a lot of people at the beginning. Even with like Shatner and Nimoy and DeForest Kelly, even with Gene Roddenberry involved, they still were like really suspicious. Somebody had taken out a, a series of ads, which they eventually, I think, Gene convinced them to to take out of the newspaper um that was just you know it don't run this show it's not real star trek and it's going to hurt the possibility of coming back as a live action or a movie which is funny because like even then they were thinking about oh they could be a star trek movie um and they were just like you know they had uh people handing out uh petitions at conventions and it was just it was kind of wild And, and gene did his best and and Dorothy to just basically kind of like let's talk with this person and all these other people and just kind of try and assuage their fears and that's why they brought a lot of uh, art example art and uh, they ran like the first episode when they actually had it at a convention before it was shown so they were trying to get positive buzz going and it seemed for the most part it was it was pretty well received people just didn't love the idea of it just being a cartoon I think. Right. I think in your book, uh, Roddenberry, there's a comment of Roddenberry saying, this is not a Star Trek cartoon. It's just right. an animated version of Star Trek. Yeah. And one of the things I, I love about your book, guys, is that you reproduce uh, the actual memos that were that were being drawn up. Uh, in one of those memos, I think it was like like from the, uh, 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 the memo that Paramount set to Lou Scheimer. At the bottom of the memo, there's there's a mention of of making Scotty have a mustache. That's awesome. So even before Star Trek the Motion Picture, you know, they were already thinking, oh, let's kind of like age these people a little bit by giving Scotty a mustache for the animated series, which of course never happened. But he just got muscles, <laughs> basically. Yeah, he definitely had muscles. <laughs> and James Dillon was very, very involved in the animated series, which we'll get to. So, so, so tell us about the filmation. What was this company? What else did filmation do besides Star Trek, the animated series? They essentially created the first, uh, you know, extended universe of cartoons on television. They, they had all the DC, they, they started out with Superman, which they got by from, they had been doing other like, um, what am I trying to say? Industrial films and things like that. And, this guy from DC comics called and they're like, Hey, can you do Superman? Uh, and they're like, huh? You know, cause sure. Come into the office. They hired someone to pretend to be people depend to be working 
Um, they had essentially a secretary that was a stuffed, like a mannequin sitting at the front. <laughs> and they and they had the DC people come in and they thought, oh, there's this whole room of people all doing their stuff. And they basically gave them Superman based off of that initial uh, meeting, which is hilarious because it was really similar to what happened to the web design company I worked for in the 90s. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so, yeah, so they they got that. And then that led to doing Aquaman they basically did like the Justice League on television. And obviously you watch them now and they're not anywhere close to what we would think of as modern superhero shows. But the fact that they had that cachet, so they they ended up getting all of... And that's sort of what led them to be able to do the things further down the road. That's what's you know, even one, more one amazing of, one of the things I, about it. I remember about Filmation is I used to watch the Brady Kids. Oh, yeah. uh, I watched uh, uh, the Archie show. You know, which is, I think that's the first time I heard Sugar Sugar. And they also did live action. I remember watching Space Academy uh, with Jonathan Harris from Lost in Space. So, you know, Rich, when Filmation decided to move forward with doing the animated series, what what did they commit to? That's a good question. I, um, Aaron, I don't, we we didn't uncover anything like that, did we? Like they didn't say we're going to do X amount of episodes. Um, The only thing I know that they committed to was the voice actors. And that wasn't every, even everybody at that time, you know, in the beginning. They did get the two the two seasons at the at the start, but in in the seventies, cartoons like it basically or a season or two seasons was kind of common that you would have one longer season and one much shorter one because they were of the mindset that kids didn't know the difference between a new episode and an old episode, which always drove me crazy because of course <laughs> they did, uh, you know. And so they had the shorter version that allowed them to sprinkle in reruns to make that longer the second season seem longer and then they could just continue on and then run both of those seasons in to syndication but it it was you know it had i think it had the advertisers figured things out more with the show and they were able to maybe figure out the budgets for the actors a little bit better it might have continued i know that leonard nimoy proposed moving it to nighttime like the Flintstones was at one point, um, which would have wow. given them a bigger budget and made the show much more likely to have continued. But that just didn't happen. You know, and it was expensive to produce because of the voice talent. So I'm sure that's yeah. probably what kept it from continuing even at, on Saturday mornings. And Gene's um, lawyer got about $1,500 per episode just is for this, being Gene's lawyer. That- is this Maybe. the same lawyer that he had in Next Generation? Uh-huh. Yeah, that guy sounds like a winner. Oh, boy, oh, boy. So if we could so, have eliminated that, maybe we could have kept the show going. I don't know. It's probably not. So let's let's talk about, okay, so Roddenberry was in. Uh, what were the sort of the things he insisted on? Because obviously he had a very, very difficult time working with the network when he was doing the original series. So when he came back to do the animated series – did he did he insist on like having more control? Like what were the uh, like these are the conditions that I will do an animated Star Trek? No, I I think that his his well one the condition was it be Star Trek, not be a kid show, not be he wanted I think like he always had you know, control over the scripts to see them, but he made sure that he had somebody in there that he trusted, and he I think he did uh, insist on on um, Dorothy Fontana being essentially what nowadays would have been a showrunner. He insisted on having, I think, final uh, okay of the scripts, 
But it did get to the point where basically Lou Scheimer said, you can't keep suggesting changes or the show will never go on the air. <laughs> it's like, oh, right, it's right, animated. Right. We actually have to have time to record audio and draw this and put it all together. Um, so after the first couple episodes, he kind of backed off on his deep dive involvement. But but I, was, I, beyond that, I don't know. I don't think we heard anything on that. Was that a big adjustment for these live action folks to to adjust to what it was to write for an animated series? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, the writer's strike allowed them to really bring in a lot of the uh, writers from the show. But David Gerald mentioned it, um, just how difficult it was in the beginning because it's it's different commercial beats. Um, you obviously write less, although he said he ended up writing a lot more than he thought. Um, but remember, you, you have different plot lines going on in, in, a, in a 60 and back in the 60s and 70s episodes were like, what, 50, 55 minutes. There wasn't as much commercial time as there is now. Yeah. So they were writing a lot and now they didn't have to. So it, it had to be concise. It's one of the things that. No so, B plot. Uh, yeah, no B plot. Dave, and, you know, David said that he was talking to Dorothy about it because he was struggling um, for. um uh more tribbles more troubles and she said just write star trek and he said whatever that was it just clicked for him um and he was able to do it you know a lot of the other guys i think had animation experience there was a couple other writers that struggled with it but they eventually got it i know dc trimmed a lot of um scripts when she had to so i think that that sort of helped as well because they like aaron said they had to get things through the system and you know, Gene had a lot of notes and sometimes they had to go back to the writer and have them redo things. So like Walter, <laughs> poor Walter Koenig. I don't know. <laughs> well, well, let's talk first of all. So you mentioned the writer's strike. So there was a writer's strike going on. And at the time, the Writers Guild insisted that writers could not write for live action TV or films, but animation was not covered by the Writers Guild contract. That's why Dorothy Fontana was able to reach out to so many of the writers who worked on the original series. And they were, in fact, because of this loophole, able to write animated series episodes for 3000 bucks a pop. And Roddenberry and Fontana had the mantra to the writers to let your imagination run wild. They also recruited, in addition to David Gerald, who wrote More Tribbles, More Troubles, uh, and Bem, uh, also Samuel A. Peoples, who wrote uh, the second pilot, Where No Man Has Gone Before. He did the first episode of the animated series, which was Beyond the Farthest Star. So talk about you know history repeating itself. I think that's pretty awesome. Margaret Arman, who did like Game Server Triskelion, did the Laurel Eye Signal. Stephen Candell did uh, Mud's Passion. And then there's Mark Daniels. This, I think, is really, really cool. So Mark Daniels was one of the two directors who directed the most episodes of the original series with 14 episodes, which made him tie with the great Joseph Pevney. 14 episodes each. Well, Mark Daniels came back to the animated series not to direct, but to write an episode. And then there is, of course, Walter Koenig, who got the shaft, unfortunately, <laughs> by not being in the show and not voicing the character of Chekhov. But he wrote his very, very first TV script ever with the Infinite Vulcan. So my question, Aaron, is why 
not Gene Kuhn. I believe that he was sick at that point and then ended up passing away before there was an opportunity for him to write. I, I also had read that Gene Kuhn uh, did not think it was worth $3,000 an episode. Well, that, yeah. Yeah, I was trying to be more charitable, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 it's okay. You could be honest. Um, But but can you imagine, Rich, someone like Gene Kuhn writing an episode of the animated series? I I think that would have been a great thing, but, you know, it was not to be. What's funny about Mark Daniels, one of our planets is missing, feels like it's distilled TOS, honestly, when you watch it, to me. Um, So I think he would have been fantastic with it if he had just let himself, you know put aside the fact that it was a a quote-unquote cartoon. Yeah. One of the things that I find which makes the animated series um, like the fourth season of the original series is that they had all these original writers. They had all these people that understood what Star Trek was. So it wasn't like, you know, we Aaron was mentioned the Superman cartoon. You know, it's like you can't even watch that today. It's it's so difficult. (laughs) I mean, you know, maybe from a nostalgia standpoint, you can watch like a YouTube clip. But the animated series, if you sit down and watch an episode, it feels like you're watching an original series episode. And that's because of the, the talent that they brought back. I mean, think about it. Gene Kuhn was the only person to tell Dorothy no. You know, she was right. able to get back. Yeah. You know, Chuck Menville, Paul Schneider, David Harmon, um, Margaret, Samuel Peoples came back. And like you said, Scott, I don't think people enough people actually note that, that he wrote, you know, the the, the first, the second pilot, but the first, like, Star Trek episode that NBC approved, and then he wrote the first animated one. What like a terrific bridge! Look, look at that history, and no one, no one really recognizes that for some reason. And, and what's what's interesting is that both where no man has gone before and uh, beyond the farthest star sort of deal with like the Enterprise going as far out as they could possibly go. So, yeah. you know, they distill, probably should go. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to distill an episode of uh, the original series, then where no man has gone before is a good one to distill. And, and of course it's from a, from the same writer. I mean, you know, Steve, like what, what are your, what are your thoughts on like how some of these, these animated series episodes, I mean, many of them would have made amazing live action episodes. You know what just occurred to me is like, I think this is something that only just now is maybe starting to happen, which is a company taking an animated property and treating it as equally important as the live action one. And I think that's what we've seen with Marvel in What If just recently on Disney, which is that is that What If is part of their canon. It's part of what they're actually trying to do. And I don't think that had ever been done other than Star Trek. Where they, where they, and and obviously, I think budgetary and time limitations lead the quality to not be at the same level. But idea wise, some of the ideas are right up there, which is, and, and it's funny, you know, I'll just say this is that as a creator, to me, because I grew up on comic books, I loved animation, I love science fiction, I like heavy dramas and all sorts of stuff, and did a lot of theater. There's no difference to me. Like, there, you know, this podcast is just as important to me as a piece of art and craft as making a documentary or a film. And so the fact that that's how what Roddenberry, his philosophy that he brought to the animated series, I think makes a makes a lot of sense and B is awesome. 
No wonder Enterprise Incidents is such a well-produced show. Thank you so much for that, Steve. <laughs> well, I don't have I don't have different gears of like I mean I have different amounts of time and different amounts of money, but I don't have a different amount of aesthetic sense or perfectionism. It's like this isn't good enough. <laughs> Let's make this better. You know, uh, that's that's part of making stuff. For sure. Aaron, let's talk about getting getting the original cast to return and how Leonard used his clout and star power to make the original series even or the animated series even better. One of the things that, about Filmation that's kind of interesting is they're very much like a family company, which is one of the reasons they basically went under. They decided they weren't going to farm everything out to another country. They wanted to keep it with their their animators because they knew their animators had families to feed. Um, but they also were really, you know, very open-minded and what we would today, you know, call uh, SJWs or something <laughs> in some ways, I think. Um, so they wanted to have all these different voices and the fact that, you know, they only had so much money and they, they really didn't want to move forward without Nichelle and um, George Takei. But I, I, do you remember Rich exactly why they they had to at first? Uh, I know they just budget. It was, was just like you said, it was just budget. Yeah. It was already expensive for a, a Saturday morning yeah. show, and you know they had they had Jimmy Doing who could do like every voice. So <laughs> they felt like you know Doing could do them, and then you know they hired Majel. Yeah, Majel. I mean, you know Gene's wife. You know, hey, she can do a bunch of voices. So could you imagine they, her doing Uhura? That's just my brain yeah. melts thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. They didn't. They they thought they could get away with with not having him. And I mean, you know, Leonard gets there and he's like, "Where's Where's George? Where's Nichelle?" And yeah, you know, they're Star Trek. They're the diversity of, of Star Trek. How can you not have them in this project? Um, you know, and I think a month later they were they were signed and on board. So, yep, that was yeah, April, think- and then in May they were they were like, yeah. I think almost a month to the day they were like yeah. in the in the studio. Yeah, Fred Bronson, who was the uh, publicist, um, mm-hmm. he was there when Leonard showed up and and he said, where's George? Where's Nichelle? And Fred Bronson said, oh, well, there goes the animated series. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so in fact, uh, George, T- George Takei and, and Nichelle Nichols were not involved at the very beginning. And Leonard, Leonard Nimoy, and this is like back in 72, 73 said, I will not do this show unless they are involved because Sulu and Uhura represent the diversity of Star Trek. And like, again, like this sounds like the kind of conversation that you would hear today about a film, about a Mm -hmm. show. And Leonard Nimoy was taking the stand in 1972-73 to get George and the show back. And I just go as if I could not love Leonard Nimoy any more than I already do. What a stand. Uh, you know, didn't quite work for Walter Koenig, but you know what? <laughs> Having George in the show back was really, really important. And I think that set ripples through filmation for the rest of the time that they were around, just because they they kind of piggybacked on that whole idea of the diversity. They had Fat Albert, uh, which was, you know, inner city kids, and they had uh the first uh uh African American female superhero on television uh when it was like the the three 
I can't remember the, the top of my head. They were like mythology. It was Hercules and so and so. And and if you watch the uh, like you were talking about uh, the um, Space Academy, and uh, they just basically everybody you know they they had a variety and a, a diversity of of cast, and I think that kind of goes back to Star Trek. You know what's funny is uh, I was at a a creation show in Vegas. And it was, uh, I guess three years ago and, you know, Shatner, William Shatner goes to, goes to this big, huge Las Vegas convention. He goes every year. So somebody asked him, somebody walked up to the microphone and asked William Shatner about the animated series. Like, what was it like playing Captain Kirk again after the original series? What do you think that Shatner said? Don't know. <laughs> like, said, sorry. I, I, I'm building up because he says this a lot. Whenever anyone asks him about the, he says, I have absolutely no memory <laughs> at all <laughs> of doing the animated series. <laughs> that well, was I mean, one of the reasons we did not get him for our book because he was just like, there's, there's nothing for me to talk about. It was just like, <laughs> great. Thanks. Remember, remember, I mean, they were just given scripts, you know, the original series, he's involved in scripts. He's getting things rewritten. But for the animated series, I mean, a lot of times he was like in another state doing something and he had to record it somewhere else. He just right. got the scripts and read the scripts. And so except Which for the, that, episodes, you can kind of hear it sometimes in his voice, too, where it's like a little bit more flat than he would be if he was in person because he's such a dynamic like character. That was actually one of my questions is that sometimes in animation, casts actually get to record together. Most of the time they're recording separately. How was this recorded? Um, the except first for the three first... episodes, they were recorded yeah. together. Oh, sorry. that's okay. After that, yeah. everybody was separate, and it was yeah, really first... just. I think you know George and Michelle. They came in. James came in, but you know Leonard was was doing projects. Shatner was doing projects, so they would you know go to a studio where they were and record their voices. So, except for the first three, they really didn't have the opportunity to play off each other. I think there was one they sent him the tape deck. I want to say it was Leonard was doing a play or something in New York. And so they sent him sent him the equipment or something like that. There, wow. There's one of the episodes where the captain's log for for um, Shatner, you can definitely tell like he was sitting in like a small closet or something. Yeah. And record it, you know, so it was and you could tell from yeah. the episode once the episode starts after that, it's like totally different kind of sound. It's pretty funny. Well, and that makes it not surprising at all to me that Shatner doesn't remember it. I mean, that means if you're just recording the lines by yourself, that is as yeah. unmemorable a process as you could possibly imagine. Well, well, first of all, uh, I agree with you, Aaron. You know, as much as I love the animated series, there are times I'm watching it and and I feel like Shatner's delivery is is flat. And to say that about a performance from William Shatner speaks volumes <laughs> about his commitment to doing a live action show where you are memorizing 10 pages of dialogue a day, a day, plus, you know, getting into it with the other actors and the director and the producers being on the set versus like being someplace, some other city doing a touring theater and having to record it and, you know, in your hotel room or whatever. Um, but Steve, to answer your question, my friend, the original actors did get together to record the first three episodes beyond the far, the star yesteryear and more tribbles, more troubles 
on June 4th, 1973. It would be the last time that all seven cast members would be together for a Star Trek project. You know, this doesn't include conventions until, of course, you know, when they started filming Star Trek, the motion picture. But there is a great black and white picture of Shatner, Nimoy, and Kelly uh, looking at script pages, speaking into a microphone. I'm going to post this on our on our Enterprise Incidents Facebook page. It's a really, really cool picture. And uh, you get to see the joy, even though Shatner doesn't remember it. You know, in that moment, he seemed to be enjoying it just great uh, I, when they I, were all in the studio at the same time. I believe, Scott, that picture was taken when um, Nichelle and George weren't there either, because that's when Fred had the um, photographer yep. for the first recording. So, like, that's a posed shot. They weren't recording then. Oh, is that right? Yeah. That's a yeah. posed yeah. shot. Oh, yeah. Interesting. We have a whole story of that thing because we researched that because we wanted to use that picture in our book. It's perfect for this book. It would have cost an arm and a leg to get from the LA Times, even though we knew the person who took it, the person who sent this photographer there. Like, no, no, no. They 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 were not willing to part for it for a reasonable amount of money. So, so that was for I'm the glad you can post it, but yeah, we can't. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering, because like when I saw the photo, you know, when I was, you know, in addition to your book, I was also looking online at other things that might have been written about the animated series. And I saw this photo and I said, oh, my God, this photo was awesome. So I go yeah. back to your book and I'm flipping through the book. Yeah, I'm I like, know. Mm-hmm. Where the hell is this photo? <laughs> so if you notice the one picture of Gene, I believe it's actually taken in the same room because the wood paneling matches, which is hilarious. So I, I think know, that one was taken at Filmation. You know, Scott, oh, we, wow, wow. we yeah. Aaron and I had many conversations trying to figure out how we were going to pull some of this off because there were so many people that had resources that wanted to be compensated. And it's not like this book, it's not like we made a lot of money on this book. This was a passion project. And, you know, yeah. it, CBS even said there's no budget. You know, people should want to give you this <laughs> yeah. stuff. And nobody wanted to give us stuff. We got lucky. But if it wasn't for Bob Klein, we wouldn't have had any artwork in the book. So right. it's, it's amazing wow. to think Bronson about. And gave us like it was amazing. The press releases. To see. Yeah. I mean, he treated the show like a real Star Trek show and wrote press releases that were as if he was writing for an evening, you know, one hour program. So we have quotes by Matt Jeffries and all sorts of things that we never would have got otherwise. So, I mean, that was that was amazing. It was a treasure trove of information, because if you think about it, it's like Aaron said, he's treating it like a primetime show. There's no way most newspapers were even printing any of this stuff for a Saturday morning show. So the first time it probably saw the light of day was in the book, which was great because we were able to get Margaret Armham in there. We were able to get Gene in there, Magil in there. And so and Nichelle in there, you know, it was it was nice to be able to do that. And that's whenever you saw a reference to the 1973 interview, that's what that was. That was from his press releases. So, Steve, my question for you is when you saw the animated series, what did you think the first time you saw Lieutenant Arix? Uh, you know, these questions of what I first thought, I, <laughs> I, I'm never going to be good at answering them. <laughs> but I, what I can tell you is that pre-Star Wars, having these different kind of aliens in science fiction was really pretty cool. Absolutely. Because you had, you had Arix, you had Mares. And you're right, prior to Star Wars, which was still four years away when the animated series debuted, and you've got this guy with three arms sitting in the navigator station, you have a second communications officer who's uh, 
Perfect. Uh, <laughs> so, so Aaron, talk about Adosia Navigator Lieutenant Arix and the Communications Officer Mares. The funny thing is, with I mean, visually, I know I talked with Bob about you know how they were created. Um, you know, basically, he 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 used a gazelle as kind of like the the um, basis for his feet and his like his hooves and stuff like that, which you don't really see that often. Um, and I think it must have been hard to animate him walking, which is why you don't really see that hardly at all. Uh, he's floating sometimes with three legs and he's standing on a transporter pad, but I don't believe we actually ever see him locomoting across, across a, a hallway or anything. Um, but there wasn't a lot of character background information. I mean, they literally are sort of set pieces, unfortunately. Um, however, they did put out a bio that was kind of at the same time to let other people know, you know, this is what these new characters are about which you'll never learn any of this in the show, unfortunately. Um, so it, it, it was really cool because you learned that he was actually Chekhov's flight instructor and mm. he, yeah. And he taught him pretty much everything he knows. And cause he's, he's uh, the Edosians are very long lived, longer live, lived than Vulcans. And so he was, he's been around for quite a while and he, he didn't actually go to Starfleet Academy. He got field commission, there's just all these really interesting things and and you hear about the history of their planet and that because they're so long lived they actually don't have that many children so it's it's unusual to have a brother or sister but there's all these things that would be really interesting to have heard in the show but there was just no way to bring that up I think for some reason with the given the the shortness today we would have had an Eric's episode we would have had a Mares episode we just didn't right. back then there were two directors on the animated series. Uh, you had a different one for each season. So let's talk about, about those two guys. Yeah. Um, Hal Sutherland, you know, he's a big part of filmation. He, he started it, um, you know, and it was a well-oiled machine. He handled everything, all the animation side of it. He oversaw all of that. So as director, he's making sure that the, um, uh, the color sheets, the music acting, the voices all match up. Um, it's funny too, cause that's, you know, I'll mention the urban legend now about him being colorblind and it's very possible he was colorblind, but um, he had nothing to do with the colors of the show is Irv Kaplan, who also wasn't colorblind. Um, Irv Kaplan just liked pinks. He liked pinks and greens and he didn't, he went in his own room and he colored the show and that was it. And um, I mean, Irv Kaplan basically, you know, Lou and Norm Prescott, I think he was one of the they, he was one of the big three, but he didn't want to be as involved as the other two. So they let him do the the coloring and he just got to do what he wanted to do. But I meant, yeah, that first season, Herb, you know, ran everything. I'm mean, sorry, not Herb, Hal, Hal Sutherland. And then Bill Reed came on for the second season. Um, Hal retired, moved out of the state. And um, but at that point, Bill said it was just a well-oiled machine. But again, it's like Aaron said, Filmation had that way of doing things. So everybody knew the they were roles. very tiered. It's not like a yeah. creative. Yeah. Like a company today where you'd be like, oh, I don't understand this. Let me go talk, talk with the art director. No, you would send a memo to somebody who would pass it on. And it was just you. you there was no interaction between the departments, which is probably why some of the issues that we've seen popped up. I mean, they didn't even um, talk with Dorothy that Dorothy didn't have yeah. any real contact with them either. She just, she oh, had her own little in, space to, yeah. yeah. And she turned in her final was, scripts and that was it. 
Was everything done in-house? I mean, today they ship off things for in-betweening out to, you know, South Korea and all over the world. Was everything done in-house at Filmation? Yes. Yes, everything, everything was done in-house. Yeah, they did. Um, Like I said, they had a well-oiled machine there. It was just um, it's the way they did it. Just down the street in Sherman Way from my place, actually. I drove oh, wow. by it by accident. Yeah, I was just like, wait, oh, that's wow. Filmation. Yeah. <laughs> and what would you say, what were the biggest advantages and what were the biggest disadvantages of going from live action to animation? Um, well, I know, you know, the biggest advantage is obviously uh, mentioned it earlier, but the ability to put characters like A-Rex and, and Marissa on the, on the bridge, um, the ability to have these ba- um, backgrounds that you couldn't do in live action. Heck, they did an episode underwater. You, there was no way in 1969, even in 1973, they wouldn't have been able to do that without animation. So they were it able to do a lot of things. originally going to be live action. So yeah. that wouldn't have been able to, you know. Oh, I don't know how they would have pulled off them. Yeah. yeah that- <laughs> um, the Terraton incident with um, then they shrunk everybody. There's no way they could have done that. So they were definitely the advantages. Um, I- I'll be honest. I think the only disadvantages they had was there was still a limited budget. They could only do so much. They could only draw so many characters or um, – you know, and they had a pretty condensed window of time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, they, yeah, they did that episode underwater. Eat your heart out, James Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> and that is going back to their old work. They actually used some of the basically the swimming models of Aquaman. So there are times when you see them swimming. If you you can do a side by side comparison with Aquaman and Aqualad and it's Spock and Kirk, basically. So. Interesting. I tell you, and that's yeah. one of the things I love about the animated series. It, they reused, recycled, just like the original series. You know, that, that shot of the Enterprise. Even more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, even more. Everything. It was just so great. Those running pictures. It's the same one. You know, what, you know what's great? You know what's great about the shots of the Enterprise is that the shots of the Enterprise that are used for the animated series are the exact same shots that were used for the original series. Like the exact same. They didn't, they didn't try to, I don't know if this was out of necessity or, or uh, if it was, you know, a, a, a way to make fans feel like they are truly watching Star Trek. But like when you see the Enterprise over a planet, you know, when you see the Enterprise, uh, you know, going off into the distance, uh, it's the same exact angle that you would see you know, from the original effects from, you know, uh, Westheimer. Very much on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So, so one of the other things I really love about the animated series, and I, I was so get, I was so excited to get that La La Land release of the music. The music is great. Now there wasn't a whole lot of it, but yeah, if you have to watch a lot of it, it gets to you after a while, (laughs) but it, it, uh, you know, sometimes they use the same score in the same episode over and over again. Yeah. So, Aaron, tell us about composer Ray Ellis. Oh, Ray Ellis uh, basically was the house composer for Filmation. He was a jazz composer, uh, a jazz artist. And I'm trying to remember, do you remember off the top, Richard, uh, who he wrote for? Like famous jazz musicians. Yeah, I don't remember off the top and, of my head, but he was. Your, yeah. Yeah, but so he he that was his background, and which is why you get kind of that jazzier version, I think, of, of Star Trek. But he was also working for other companies at the same time, which is the reason for the uh, the pseudonym. 
because he did not want to. I, I think there's, I don't know if it was competent. Do you remember exactly? It was, uh, it was just the way the contract was written. I think he wasn't allowed to do other work at the time yeah. for other people. So, so he was yeah, credited sort of, he, yeah, yeah. He was credited to Yvette Blaze, which was his wife's maiden name and, uh, Jeff Michael, uh, which were the first names of his two sons. So, uh, you know, uh, it's a shame yeah. because like, I, I just think the, uh, <clears throat> you know, the opening, uh, the theme for the animated series is, is excellent. I love the animated series, uh, theme song. I think it's just terrific. Some of the few things that we actually know about the music, they to save money and to be able to use like a full orchestra, they went to Paris to record it, oh. which to me is like, that's cheap. OK, <laughs> I don't know how, but <laughs> um, which makes me wonder if it was like, was that also a like a vacation sort of glued into that? <laughs> or I don't know. I wonder if Ray um, was was working over there and it was just easier to do it in Paris. Yeah, that might um, have been. You know, Neil Bolt. I know his son was that. involved, too. Neil Bolt did the production for La La Land. And one of the things, you know, the, the original source tapes are gone. So, but luckily they were able to, the computer, uh, the, the recording elements, they could isolate the music. So like, he makes it well, clear, like, stims. you know, yeah. And so it's great because you can have some of the music. So we had that CD with all the, the cues, but, you know, they're all short because they have to be edited to the episode. So imagine what it would have sounded like if you had the rest of the music. That, you know, it's probably sitting in somebody's basement. Probably not like on gone. I'm surprised. Yeah. Well, unless, although film, a lot of stuff from Filmation when Hallmark bought it, Hallmark just dumped stuff, dumped it. which is uh, why we've lost a lot of of, of uh, animation cells and just you know just, that's why when you get an animation cell from the eBay or something like that, you're the odds of getting the background and the foreground are almost nil because they've just basically they, Oh, we want to give these to people. So they would just mix and match them for some reason. Like, Oh, this looks better like this. And it's just like, no, <laughs> so we go back in time and, and just stop them from doing that. Um, but yeah, so they, they had the music where basically it was the duct version. So it's the, the audio that dips down when Kirk's talking and then goes back up. So they basically had to go in and, and rebalance all of that to create one solid, or they would go and, cut those different pieces like okay it wasn't ducked here but it was here so we can and it's exactly what i did when i made my own version of that just more technologically advanced i i could tell you exactly why it happened that way uh because what what happens when you uh when you make your mix for your film so so what it sounds like what they lost they lost the original music tracks what right, they have yeah. is the mix tracks and what because yep. what you do is whenever you make your mix and i've done this with films that i've made is you get to sell it to a foreign market so they want separate uh effects and um music um split out so that they can put their dub version on and so those separated tracks is the only left tracks left of the music which is the ones that they mixed for the audio with the dialogue very interesting very interesting well now it is time for the loaded question about is the animated series canon aaron you are yes. rubbing your face why yes it is it always has been it never was not <laughs> just like i don't know how to say this more um that was one of my new year's resolutions is to not respond to every tweet about tas canon and try and like argue with them <laughs> so, um it, there's just a series of events that led people, and especially probably people who didn't want it to be canon, to just believe it wasn't. 
when Filmation was closing its doors, you know, there was the whole who's going to own the stuff. Obviously, they still own Star Trek. Paramount is was always the owner of, of the content. And Larry Niven, around the same time, was going to put together an RPG using the Kazinti. And essentially, the, the head of whoever was in con- control at that point, I can't remember the name, uh, sent out a memo that said, hey, for right now, don't mention things from the animated series. It's just easier. Yes, we would win in court, but we don't want to deal with that. So, you know, and it wasn't like they really needed to use those for anything. It was it TNG? It was like 1991, I think. Uh, and at the same time, Gene had his lawyer whispering in his ear, the same guy, I might point out, that got paid for these episodes saying he would never be taken seriously if he was connected with a cartoon. And Filmation actually came back to them right before they closed saying we should do it a next generation animated. And hmm. that didn't happen, obviously. But yeah, oh. that would have been interesting. Just basically those things, th- that confluence of that just sort of led to a chunk of time where they didn't mention the animated series. But after Gene had passed and the Hallmark thing was all resolved and Larry Niven never did his, his RPG, uh, I think the first thing that showed back up into extended canon was the Felosians. And then it just snowballed from there. It's mentioned to Deep Space Nine. And there's always there's been a little bit of mention of, of TAS in every live action since since TAS, actually, I think. Um, so it never was not canon. They didn't have it for sale all the time. And I don't know if that's what people considered. You know, they're like, oh, they finally sold it in 2006. Yeah, actually, it was the first series to be completely offered on disc. It was on Laserdisc, but it was the first Star Trek series to be offered in total for sale. So, wow. it, yeah, I was just like, I, and I, I've never understood why people, I, I can understand people not remembering that it existed because that seemed to be a pretty consistent uh, response when we were first doing our podcast forever ago. Um, they were just like, wait, there's an animated series? I'm like, yeah. So that became our, like our, our sign off. And remember, there is an animated series. <laughs> but, you know, so I want to say, it's always been canon. They've gone on record since then. Uh, the, the Picard podcast, uh, I believe it was Alex Kurtzman or Akiva Goldsman, one of the two, mentioned, yes, uh, this is canon. We consider it the fourth season of TOS, and they go from there. And so and it's in the official timeline. It's for sale. It's mentioned in Lower Decks. And the Kazinti came up in Picard. And it's just like, it can't be, I don't know how it can be more canon. <laughs> well, 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 first of all, you know, one of the things that, that Steve and I did on the original series, covering the original series on Enterprise Incidents, is we we treated it as an overreaching arc instead of just going episode by episode. You know, we we really connected the dots of the original series and it, and it works. Like you would swear that the writers actually had this in mind. But the animated series takes that one step further because in addition to like like you know I Mud being a sequel to Mud's Women from the original series in just the first season alone of the animated series you had four episodes that were sequels to original series episodes and just recently I did a rewatch of the Counterclock incident which I hadn't seen in a really long time and in the beginning of the episode the Enterprise is at Beta Niobe which went supernova, mm-hmm. and Robert April says, 
oh, you you saw this happen, didn't you, Captain Kirk? Or, you know, I forget the yeah. exact line. So I'm like, oh, my God. So this is kind of a sequel to all our yesterdays in some ways. And they, they even use that star as like a, a way to navigate. And it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, look, you have you have great moments uh, in the animated series. The only time the only time we saw Uhura take command of the Enterprise. So you know what? That twice. That better be canon. <laughs> yeah. I, can, can, I just want to jump in. I've always thought these arguments about canon are just dumb. It's a <laughs> dumb argument because it's like, look, there are so many things that we could look at in the original series, which is obviously canon, yeah. that we don't talk about anymore. No one talks about Vulcanians anymore. You know, there's <laughs> all sorts of things that happen. There are all sorts of technologies that they use one time like being able to give yourself superpowers from Plato's stepchildren. There's all, and we go, yeah, well, we're never going to mental that illness has been solved. Right. That yeah. All the mental <laughs> illness. I mean, there's just so many things and it's like, look, are there things in the animated series that will probably never be heard from again? Totally. Are there things from the animated series that it's totally fun to reference that these other shows that you brought up have referenced to give us little uh, geeks, a little bit of joy. Yes. That's what it is, is that you take what's, good and is there good stuff to take from the animated series absolutely this whole it either is or it isn't canon is just a, it's a ridiculous argument i I, and I think people confuse canonicity with consistency right because they are not the same thing <laughs> well also you know when you talk about canon i mean look as star trek continues to grow and evolve and change with the times you know canon can be a real noose around its neck. So you got to have mm-hmm. some wiggle room there. For example, uh, Steve, you know how much I love metamorphosis. And that was the introduction to Zephram Cochran. So when <laughs> when Zephram Cochran appeared in Star Trek First Contact, you know, he was nothing like the version we saw in the original series episode. And also in First Contact, he was an earthling, whereas in the original series, he was from Alpha Centauri. So yeah, canon schmanin, like it's okay. I'm I'm perfectly fine with them, you know, just kind of bending the rules a little bit with canon just for the sake of making a great episode, a great series, or in the case of like, you know, the JJ movie, you know, a great film. I'm perfectly fine with that. Star Trek can't be limited to something that was mentioned in, you know, Requiem for Methuselah you know, as an aside, you know, you can't hold the whole, se- the whole, you know, mythology of Star Trek today, but you the also have had- time travel. They do. You can hand wave most of that away anyway. It's just like, Oh, sure. they changed the timeline at some point. Okay. So exactly. Exactly. And then, and then you have like in an episode, like how sharper than a serpent's tooth, you have the first native American Starfleet officer, Anson walking bear. I think this is like, that was like, a, that was a big deal, you know, for that, for 1974, for, for, uh, uh, an episode like that to, to be produced. And it is you know? still better representation of native Americans than Chakotay ever was because it was actually written by somebody who was actually native American. Um, that's a, and, that's a great story. Yeah. I mean, Russell yeah. Bates, you know, um, He's trying to pitch stories, but not even referencing his Native American background. And they bring David Wise in. And David said in the pitch meeting, he could tell DC wanted that. But for whatever reason, Dorothy wasn't making it clear to Russell. So once David picked up on that, the episode just clicked for them, which is just, you know, it's 
fantastic. I'm sorry, we were fortunate as well because um, David ended up passing um, about four months after the book was released. And, you know, there were a and couple Russell of passed before we were able to interview him because we were waiting on contract signing. Yeah, so we, oh. we were... We lost a couple people in between. We weren't allowed to talk about it. We weren't allowed to interview. We weren't allowed to do anything. And then, like, you know, be able to get David, be able to get Dorothy. But, you know, David gives us this great story about this episode, and it's an, the Emmy episode. So, you know, to be able to include that was just, it was a gift. It was be, to be able to share his story, to share their story. And that really was the the emphasis, the epitome, uh, the why we wanted to do this book was just we wanted to capture those stories before they disappeared. Yeah, yeah, no, we know exactly what you mean. So, so you had sixteen episodes in season one of the animated series. Why only six episodes in season two? Well, they probably only That's contracted how... twenty-two total, and they yeah. always the second season they would do more reruns. They would put a bunch of reruns in, and then they would put a new episode. And again, that was the landscape for animation back then. So it wasn't like that was the plan all along. It's very similar to like Thundar the Barbarian, I think was one of the ones that I had noticed that was was similar. It's like at a, a longer first season, much shorter second season, and then they just sort of threw in uh, reruns. I, I do. I do remember that with Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Yeah. Uh, you know, with Firestar and Iceman. Mm -hmm. and like the first season, you know, the second season came back with some really good episodes and then they started like rerunning episodes from the first season again. Yeah. So so Shimer and you said Nimoy. Uh, also, Shimer had lobbied for the animated series to be moved to prime time. Um, one of the reasons for its cancellation, ultimately, the animated series was because, because it was Star Trek. And because it was Star Trek, it was more for grownups or for teenagers, not the kids who were watching Saturday morning cartoons. So, Aaron, if we could talk a little bit about, about the cancellation of the animated series. Yeah, I, one of the big reasons behind that was advertisers just didn't know what to do with it. Like you said, because it was it was on a a time when you would be hawking cereal and toys, but it was also for adults that, you know, watch them with their kids and it just that sort of world just didn't exist back then. They didn't have, you know, the Clone Wars or something like that 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 was like, okay, this is adults and kids and basically in all ages um show. Like Prodigy even. That's what I think you can see it the same way i know they, they said that prodigy was like the first star trek actually made for children but when you watch it it's like okay i guess but it's still pretty pretty accessible for adults sure but yeah the, it just it came down to finance unfortunately and, and finance and just not knowing kind of what to do with it it was just this like this is just weird like i don't know if they had st uh stats that you know it didn't find its audience but they reran it forever uh, I think it went to what, 70, 78, 79 off and yeah, on? I mean, that's how, that's how I saw it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I yeah. didn't see it when it first came on. So it was years later and then, that I saw it on like, just Saturday like, morning. Yeah. And then the mid 80s, I think it started on Nickelodeon shortly for a bit. Yeah. So, so, so Shimer was quoted as saying that Star Trek was not a children's show. It was the same show that they would have done at night. We did the same stories with the same writers. The fans loved it, but it was not a kid's show. Yeah. So so the question is, what is the legacy of the animated series, Aaron? Wow. Um, <laughs> I, the legacy, I, it 
it helped continue Star Trek. Uh, if we didn't have the animated series between that and the motion picture, who knows if the motion picture would have happened. Um, it, I mean, it probably would have, but it just, there was some sort of, it, it was a nice continuity. And it, it also brought in a new generation, kids who were, you know, even though it wasn't for kids, kids did see it on Saturday morning. So that became a lot of people's first Star Trek. And, you know, when you, when you have a first Star Trek, that means that you're going to probably make, make a viewer for life. And so, you know, I, I, I was certainly young when I saw it. And so I was very excited for the motion picture. I was only nine when, when nine or 10, when the motion picture came out. Um, but I had already absorbed so much Star Trek and, and it just, yeah, it was, I think it was critical just, just to keep it in the mind's eye, the public eye. How about for you, Rich? What do you what do you think the legacy of the animated series is? I mean, for me personally, it's it's the it's the continuing mission. It's the fourth season. It's the original cast. It's the original writers, and it's Star Trek. Um, it's never been a question for me. I, I hate the whole canon thing, and, and I think Steve gets it too because of we're both comic fans. I can't tell you how many times things have you know been changed, rebooted, re-updated, and things like that. You know, just tell good stories. These were good Star Trek stories. So, like, that's that's what it is for me. The legacy is it's Star Trek. It'll always be Star Trek. It's never going to be an asterisk next to it. You know, I think, unfortunately, it's going to be, like Aaron said, it depends who you talk to. Um, sure. You know, and it's just like, it's like new fan. It's like old fans now with the new shows. They won't watch Discovery. They won't watch Picard because it's not their Star Trek. And, you know, hey, if there's a Star Trek that you like, Star Trek's still out there. If you just watch Discovery, then Star Trek's there. If you just watch the original series, Star Trek's still there. So to me, the legacy is it's the fourth season. It's more of the original cast because the movies were different. You know, I love the movies, but the movies were different. And to be able to get the interaction and think about this. And I'm sorry, I get excited, but. You know, you got episodes with the horror. I mean, she got to take command, you know, twice. She got to take charge. You had um, Chapel and Uhura and the Lorelei signal. You know, you got to see some characters that didn't get focus in the original series because she never would have had that focus, especially because she was an African-American woman on primetime television in the late 60s. But even in the 70s, she wouldn't have had that, been able to have that. There would have been no way. So that, I mean, the animated series gave you those opportunities. You know, you talked about advantages and disadvantages. There's another advantage. It's just, you know, sorry, I geek out about some of these things when, when you well, talk looking to at other shows that were on at the same time, there were some pretty poor representations of, of other races and cultures. I mean, you had, you know, what you could think of as racist, you know, Hong Kong fooey or something like just things are on running concurrently. You know, it's like, I, they just, they, they were just characters and they gave them stuff to do. And there was no, they weren't hanging a lantern on it or saying, Oh, look, like, like you were mentioning the Brady kids. I know there's like, look at women can do this too. There was like one of those episodes with just like, also the first time we saw wonder woman on television, by the way, <laughs> for the, the Brady kids. Um, but yeah, so, which I, now I'm, I'm realizing that might've been because they had that connection with DC. That makes sense. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, 
what Rich is saying is just like, sorry, I didn't mean to pig- piggyback on that, but I was just thinking of all those other cartoons at the time that just sort of, it doesn't mesh. It's just weird. You watch it. It's like, there, this is the perfect example. There was those half hour shows that they would put on the night before the Saturday morning cartoons started in the fall that were sort of like the preview of what's coming up. And they had you know, Sigmund and the Sea Monsters. And it was like they showed a clip. It's like Star Trek. And it was about the Orions taking uh, Spock's medicine and he's going to die. And they were talking about the Babel con- uh, uh, conventions. And then it cuts back and you're just like, that was like tonal whiplash between cartoons. And suddenly it's like a very adult kind of, you know, trying to save Spock from pirates. And then they switch over. Now the monsters. And you're just like, okay, this is just so strange. Steve, what about you? What, what do you think the, you know, just based on, you know, this conversation and just what you already knew about the animated series, you know, what are your thoughts about the animated series as a whole? Well, Scott, I am not going to answer that question. I am going to delay answering that question for about six months until I can watch it because anything I say now will be based solely on my poor memories and this conversation right now. And I want to have a fully formed opinion before I really say what I think the legacy See, this is. Why, this is why Steve Morris is the perfect partner to do a deep dive episode <laughs> by episode series like Enterprise Incidents. And I completely agree. I'm really looking forward to doing a deep dive on the animated series. What I will say now about it is this, that I find the early 70s to be such a, dare I say it, fascinating time period of Star Trek because you know when next gener when when the motion picture came out in 79 you know then you got more movies and then you had next gen which led into the space 9 which led into voyager and then enterprise so there was a constant thing going on with Star Trek from 1979 onwards but after the original series went off the air at least broadcast wise in uh 1969, you know, you have this really interesting period where where Star Trek rose from the ashes. It was a phoenix. The early 70s with the conventions and the animated series and the syndication, you know, uh, Even the toys. I, like like all of you, like Steve, you and, and Aaron and, and Rich, you know, we are members of the syndication generation. We discovered Star Trek when during that period of time when Star Trek got very, very, very popular, when the right people were watching it that made it popular. And the animated series was one of the projects that helped Star Trek thrive in popularity along with the syndicated original episodes to the point that we got Star Trek, the motion picture and everything else that followed. So I am, you know, I love this book. Star Trek, the official guide to the animated series. It is on sale now. You can get it on Amazon and uh, also at probably your local Barnes & Noble, um, which is where I got my copy. So you got to get this book. It is just beautifully put together. There's a ton, a ton of information. If you are a Star Trek trivia junkie and you need to know each and everything about Star Trek, especially the earlier shows – this is the book for you. I think the original series and the animated series are, are history. They are history. And this book is a history book and essential just up there with Mark Cushman's These Are the Voyages books. So do get Star Trek, the official guide to the animated series. Rich, 
Aaron, uh, thanks a million for joining us here on Enterprise Incidents. Aaron, where can people find you on social media? Uh, on social media, you can find me at Geek Filter. That would be Instagram, Twitter for however long it's there, and <laughs> pretty much anything else. Uh, yeah, so that's where you can find me. How about you, Rich? Not, not really on social media anymore. I'm, uh, I'm back off again. <laughs> wise. That's a wise choice. Thank you. Um, well, you can find me, as always, at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And uh, my other show, The Cinephiles, you know, if you want to, if you're interested in animated TV, you might be interested in animated movies. And some of the animation we've done is Beauty and the Beast, Ratatouille, and The Incredibles. I know we've done deep dives on those, and there's probably other animation that I'm forgetting. Scott, how do people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. Make sure you go to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents, because we are always announcing the next episode, who our next guests are. We're putting up uh, rare photos, like the photo of Shatner, Nimoy, and Kelly, uh, you know, quote unquote, recording an animated episode of the original, of the animated series. Um, but yes, please go to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents. Make sure you support us. If you want to make a very, very generous donation to support Enterprise Incidents, Steve Morris, how do people do that? Oh, well, they could just look at the show notes and right on the top line, you can go to Anchor where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, as much as $9.99 a month. And we definitely appreciate it. This is a lot of work to make and any little bit you can help to keep us going is very, very much appreciated. Well, our journey into the animated series is now officially underway with this really fascinating preview. So what that means is that coming up next on Enterprise Incidents, join us for our deep dive of Beyond the Farthest Star. That is next on Enterprise Incidents. Join us. And until then, keep going boldly. Boy, it feels good to say that. Boy, it feels good to say that.